Startle us, O God, with your truth. Help us in this familiar story to find something we have not seen before. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, as we have throughout the season of Lent, I invited you to think about a question as the scripture was read. What would it have been like to be among the disciples as Jesus prepared to ride into Jerusalem? What would it have been like to be one of them? It's the story we've come to know as Palm Sunday. It is a curious story. If you back up a little in the Gospel of Luke, you will find several other stories mentioning that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. By now, they are almost there. They are outside a village not far from the city walls. And Jesus makes a cryptic request. Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. Everything goes as Jesus says that it will, and the disciples drape their cloaks over that colt, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem with what turns out to be great fanfare. People begin to gather, first a few at a time, and then in large crowds along the side of the road. They spread their own cloaks on the road like some act of romantic chivalry. Accounts in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew say that they pull branches from the trees and from nearby fields and spread them along his path. And they shout, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. And the disciples shout as they see this gathering around their teacher, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Christians have been reenacting this story ever since. We call it Palm Sunday. It's become such an institution in the church that here at Knox we place a big order each year from a floral company called Eco-Friendly Palms. And our children march up the aisles, and they wave their, th their palms, and we read and hear this same story year in and year out throughout the passage of time. The obvious, if not often asked, question seems to be, why? What does it mean? What does this story have to do with anything? Why has it become so central to our faith tradition? And does it bear any relevance to anything in the world beyond the Bible? Now, of course, I'm not going to ask you that question unless the answer is yes. But this morning, I'd like to tell you a part of this Palm Sunday story that you may not know so well, one that helps us to think about what this story has to do with us. 
Thanks to the well-established scholarship of Marcus Borg, as well as John Dominic Crossan, who has spoken here at Knox, we know that at the same time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, there would have been another kind of march going on in the city. In those days, the Roman Empire was the occupying power in Jerusalem. The Jewish people were not masters of their own destiny. They were subjects of the conquering Romans and their representative, Pontius Pilate. Even the king in Israel and the priestly authorities at the Jewish temple were simply pawns of the Romans, and the common people were at the mercy of both. They were oppressed by heavy taxation, by building programs, and by an economic machine that fed the very few people at the top on the back-breaking work of everyone else. And Pilate's job was to keep it that way. He had his work cut out for him. The people were growing increasingly restless. There had been several violent uprisings in those days. And now it was the season of the Passover. One of the most important holidays in the Jewish year, the holiday remembering their release from slavery and oppression in Egypt. It was exactly the kind of celebration that would make the common people restless. People would be coming into the city of Jerusalem, to the temple from the countryside, and gathering in the streets, and Pilate would keep them in order. He would do this by holding marches. The imperial guards would put on their robes of royalty and their heaviest armor. They would climb onto their best horses and stand up on their chariots. They would wave their swords and their shields and their spears in the air, and they would ride through the streets and the squares of the town, intimidating the people, making one message very clear to them. You are occupied. You have no power. We are in charge. Now once you know about that other march, suddenly what Jesus is up to makes a different kind of sense. Go into the village and get me a colt, asks Jesus. Not a horse, a colt. Let's spread our old cloaks over it, and I'm going to ride into town. Jesus is engaging in a simple but very effective form of street theater, a highly ritualized and strategic act of protest. He does not have an army to oppose Pilate on the battlefield, and Jesus does not want one. Instead, he's going to get Pilate's attention by making fun of him. And the people eat it up. They crowd the streets and they spread their own cloaks on the ground. They wave palm branches in the air and they chant out loud. They do all of the things that the Romans want people to do for them. And the disciples are drawing a kind of attention that some of the common folk do not want because they are afraid of the Romans. 
So in verse 39 of our story, some people say to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. The people cannot be stopped. Jesus replies, If I silenced them, the stones on the grounds would shout aloud. The enthusiasm cannot be stopped. The protest has begun. The people want a different kind of king because they want a different kind of life. If you read your Friday email from me this week, you know I said today I was going to talk about a Game of Thrones. The final season kicks off tonight after the conclusion of some golf tournament. I say it that way because the Masters is a big deal, but if your news feed looks anything like mine, a Game of Thrones has been getting a lot more press for a lot longer. In a world of such tremendous variety of media, where nobody seems to watch the same thing anymore, a Game of Thrones is by far the widest viewed program on television. So even though most of the, the show's content is far from what we usually think about as church appropriate, it is worthwhile to talk about why this story has so captured the public imagination. What is the big deal? What does the power of that story tell us about our culture? Last week, TV critic John Powers did a good job of articulating why, and I'm going to quote some of his language in explaining it. So if you don't know, Game of Thrones is set on the imaginary continent of Westeros, invented by novelist George R.R. R. Martin. And Game of Thrones tells a juicy story of heroic knights, canny eunuchs, religious fanatics, psychophantic kings, fire-breathing dragons, savage wars, and the list goes on. Adding to its storytelling appeal, Game of Thrones contests everything in our culture from gender to climate change to immigration. Westeros even has a big wall to keep out the aliens. But like any truly great piece of pop entertainment, the show doesn't make an obvious political statement. It is a stew of energizing contradictions. On one hand, the world it depicts is a dog-eat-dog -dog struggle for power. Without power, the show suggests you are nothing and your ideals are pointless. Without strong authority, there is chaos. And at the same time, the series is shot through with a belief that not only is compassion possible, but that the most compassionate people are apt to be outsiders. The debauched but honorable dwarf Tyrion Lannister, the bastard son Jon Snow, who, notice this church people, is literally resurrected in order to save the world. And then there is Daenerys Targaryen, the queen, who frees an enslaved people. A people who, just like the ancient Israelites, will be struck by the question, how badly do we really want to stay free? 
the biblical parallels go on and on. So for those of us who don't think that the gospel is relevant to our culture, Game of Thrones is wildly popular, and its themes are just the same as what is going on in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We have a choice in life. We must decide with what kind of power will we align ourselves. Will it be with the conventional domination of the Romans or whatever is the empire of the day, parading through the streets telling the common people that they are nothing? Or will it be with Jesus, the true Savior of the world? Jesus has gathered an incredible following by making obvious what we all know but so often forget that the empires of the world will all eventually fall. That the riches of the world cannot be taken with you. And that the spoils of war come only at the expense of our brothers and sisters who are also God's children. And in his ministry, Jesus so often reminded us, as John Powers said so well, that not only is compassion possible, but that the most compassionate people are apt to be outsiders. The appeal of Game of Thrones is that people want to be drawn in by that same story by the unexpected victory of the servant leader, the one who shows real selfless compassion and not the tyrants who we've always settled for in the past. Literary critics will tell you there's really just one story in the whole world. There's just a million different ways of telling it. George R.R. Martin is a great storyteller, but the interesting question to me is why we have forgotten that Jesus tells us a story very much like it, even with all the same threats and intrigue. And why do we keep missing that he is that servant leader who has really come to save us all and to invite us to join him on the march? There is one more comparison that is worth making. The vast majority of characters in A Game of Thrones are not entirely good or entirely evil. They are a mix of both. They are all less than perfect. The best of them try to do what is right, but often they fall away from their worthy goals and into the trappings of sin. So it was with Jesus' disciples. So it is with us. And that, too, is the message of Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, the followers of Jesus seem to be rightly aligned with Jesus' calls for justice, freedom, peace, and love. But by Good Friday, all of these people will find themselves complicit in his crucifixion. And we are in the boat with them. It is our call of faith 
not to live 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem or in some fantasy world called Westeros, but in this world. With all of its own good and bad elements, its nods toward hope, and its systems of violence and oppression in which all of us participate. Knowing the story of Palm Sunday and of both of its marches should call us to enter Holy Week asking ourselves who we will follow. Who do we wish to make the Lord of our lives? What would it have been like to enter Jerusalem with Jesus? Perhaps many of them were wondering, who will I follow? How far will I go with this Jesus? How far will you go?